Oh, oh, oh. 
Father, as we continue in worship, as we take our offering, I pray that uh, how we give, the motivations of our heart would worship you, they would glorify you, that as we give, that you would help us to give cheerfully and, and sacrificially, God, that, you would, that we would give not so that we could gain, but so that we could sow seed into your kingdom, so we could store up treasure in heaven, so that we could see your kingdom advance, that lives would be changed nations would be reached, this community would be changed. I pray that, uh, that what is given here would go for your name's sake, that as we give, we would give for your name's sake, that you would be exalted, you would be worshipped well in how we give and how we continue to sing and how we open up your word after that. Father, we love you. We thank you that you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.
are here to worship your great name. We thank you for the gift of your son, the precious gift, God. Please be in this service. Soften our hearts for your word, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. My name is Dave, and it's good to be back this morning. I've been gone the past couple Sundays. Last Sunday, I was under the weather, and the Sunday before that, I was with a team of 30-plus cross-pointers serving down in um, Reynosa, Mexico, uh, alongside Isaiah 55 Ministries. And so, uh, thank you for praying for us as a team. We had an incredible week serving together and uh, being together as the body of Christ, being His hands and feet, and serving alongside the staff down there. And so, hopefully next week, you'll hear some testimonies about how God worked in and through some of the team or some of the members of that team. If you have a Bible, get to the book of Joshua. It's in the Old Testament right after the book of Deuteronomy. If you don't own a good Bible, we'd encourage you to get a free one at Guest Connections and uh, be reading that the other six days of the week. There's an encouragement in there about how to start reading, where to start reading, because the last thing we'd want you to see, we'd want to see is for you to simply listen to the Bible being taught on a Sunday, but then never pick it up the rest of the week. When it comes to food, I don't know about you, but I enjoy a good meal or two. And so, um, but I don't eat just once a week. I eat throughout the week, all right? Probably a little bit too much, but that's another, another message, another day. But um, spiritually speaking, don't just settle for a Sunday meal and then expect to fast from the Word the rest of the week and then come back to it the following Sunday. We need spiritual food as much as we need physical food. And so just encourage you to be reading it uh, the other six days of the week to feed on the living and active words of Scripture. As we're getting to the book of Joshua, we wanted to share some, uh, some fun Crosspoint family news for you. Congratulations to Aaron and Ashley Householder, who are expecting twins in October. And so uh, we rejoice with them at God's faithfulness and goodness and abundance. Um, and so be praying for them in the coming months as they walk through pregnancy and all that that entails. And um, shameless plug, there's always opportunities to serve in the nursery. Um, always opportunities, not just in October, but now. All right, you can talk to Becky, talk to a church office, and we'll get you connected. Last week, uh, John Watts did a great job of teaching through the story of Jericho. Joshua 6, if you missed it, I'd encourage you to listen online, watch online. We've been in Joshua now for a few weeks, and we've seen the, the Lord's um, incredible, just seen the Lord's people experience incredible things over these past few weeks. Great victory, great moments of seeing God do great things. They cross over the Jordan into the promised land. The Lord moves apart the waters of the Jordan at flood stage, and the people walk over on dry ground. Then they enter into the land, and they conquer the city of Jericho in spectacular fashion. The, the Lord calls them to this unique and odd battle strategy, and the people obey. They trust His words. They trust His commands. And as a result, as, as a result of this incredible victory, all of that is Joshua 1 through 6. You should read it this week because it reads as this powerful narrative of the people of God trusting in the Word of God as they walk and live by faith. They're living in humility and reverence to God Himself. God is faithful and greater than all. He's powerful. He's doing these great things. Big Mo, you know what Big Mo is? It's momentum. Big Mo is on their side. They're riding this wave of momentum of God's faithfulness. And, and, and it's not because the Israelite people are awesome. It's because God is awesome. 
God has called them to consecrate themselves before they cross over the Jordan. Joshua said this in 3.5, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Consecrate yourselves, meaning to purify yourselves, confess the sin, walk in the light, stop pretending you don't have sin and rebelling in your heart. Consecrate yourselves before a holy God. Offer up your entire life. Open up your hands. Surrender yourselves to the authority of a loving God who calls you child and who is Father. You get this picture of the, of the people in this posture of, Lord, you have all of me. You have my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. You know all, you see all, and so I'm not going to pretend. I'm, not, I'm no longer going to hide I'm loving you with all that I have. I'm trusting in you that in all areas I confess my sin. I don't desire to see sin rule over my heart, but I I desire to see you rule over my heart. Lord, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And the Lord does just that. The wonder of the Jordan River parting, the wonder of the mighty city of Jericho falling. Joshua 6, 7 even says this. It says, the Lord was, was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. And so it is up and to the right for this nation. It is up and to the right for Joshua's leadership. So what could ever stand in the way of this? What could ever impact God's goodness and God's, or just God's faithfulness, God's victory, or people experiencing victory? What could ever stand in, that, stand in their way? And that's where we find ourselves in Joshua 7 today. One of the more unsettling stories of the Old Testament. And yet a story that we see the character of God on display, not just His justice, but His mercy and His grace. In the story of Jericho in Joshua 6, in that battle, the Lord specifically told the people this, verses 17 through 19. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only only Rahab the prostitute... And all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest you have been devoted them, and you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So there's no plunder to be taken by the people. The Israelites were not to pocket anything they saw in the midst of conquering Jericho. God makes this explicitly clear here because all these things were holy to the Lord. They were the Lord's. He was the one giving them the victory over this nation, so He was the owner of all of those things. And He also warns them that if they take some of these devoted things, they will bring trouble upon the camp of the nation of Israel because they will have sinned against God Himself. They will have stolen from the God who had just given them this victory. Any guesses how this is going to go down? We'll find that the sin of one man affected the entire nation. Joshua 7, 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Achan, if you're expecting a boy, if you're dreaming about a family someday, Achan's probably not a name you're going for. And this is probably the reason for that, that you're choosing not to use Achan because of this story. Lord says, 
explicitly, don't take anything from Jericho. It's all mine. Don't take any of it. And Achan does just that. He takes some of these devoted things. I mean, wouldn't it be tempting? Let's be honest. Wouldn't it be tempting to just take a little gold, a little, a little silver, a little bronze, in the chaos of battle, in the chaos of walls come tumbling down and Jericho is conquered and oh, who's going to notice? In, in the chaos of that, no, it's not like you're always going to be seen. There's going to be moments when no one is looking. Wouldn't it be tempting to take just a little something and pocket it? I got the, a super easy question for you today. Easiest question you probably have all day. Raise your hand if you've faced temptation in life before. Right? It should be every hand up. Because even Jesus was tempted, so every hand should be up, all right? Because the reality for any person on the planet, whether you love God or hate God, whether you follow Him and trust in Him, or you follow in, in yourself, no matter who it is, we've all faced temptation. And you will face temptation. It's not going away. We live in a fallen world that's broken because of sin. You and I are born with hearts that are prone or bent towards sin. Even after we repent and believe on Jesus and are given a new heart, begin to follow Him as Lord, we're not free from temptation. And yet in Christ, knowing that He was tempted and did not sin, we know that in Christ we can have victory over temptation. We know 2 Timothy 2.22 calls us to flee from or run from temptation. And I would argue the greatest, most challenging time to run from temptation is when no one else is looking. It's when we think we are alone, when we think that, we are, that what we're going to do is not going to hurt anyone. I mean, this lie that I just told isn't going to have any consequence. This lustful look, it won't bear weight on my marriage. It won't bear, bear weight on my future marriage. I mean, this friend I always gossip with. It's not like the person that we're gossiping about can hear us, so it's not hurting anything. I mean, I cut off work early every, other, every day, so why, why what does it matter? No one notices. Who cares if I cut off work early? And we live under this false assumption that because no one else is looking, because no one else can see us, we can justify our sin. But the reality is that we, we are never out of the sight of our God. Psalm 139, 1 through 4. O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So the Lord knows all. Even for those of you who are here and, and, and you're not trusting in Christ yet, you're not believing, you haven't repented and believed the good news yet, the Lord knows and sees you. He created you. He desires that you would turn to and trust in Him and worship Him alone. We're never out of the sight of our God. The Lord never forsakes us. And so even when we are tempted, the Lord promises to be with us. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, He promises, will be in the life and the heart of a believer, giving us that power to turn from that temptation, to rule over that temptation, that where sin is lurking, that we're going to shut the door on it. Just like the Lord promised to the nation that if they sinned, it would bring trouble on the camp, such is the case for the New Covenant Christian. 
The book of James says this, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So we can't say, well, God, why did you put me into this situation? And why, why, is this, why is this happening to me? And God, why are you tempting me with this? And it's not God. Jesus prays himself, lead us not in temptation. He, he teaches us to pray that, that kind of model. And so God's not tempting. God is, is good. He's holy. No evil is going to come from him, including temptation. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So if we don't consistently turn from temptation, then it's going to lead to this desire, and then it's going to lead to sin, and then it's going to ultimately grow and entangle, and it's going to lead to our death, not just physically, but spiritually. If we choose to pursue sin rather than Jesus, if we choose to serve sin rather than our Savior, we are making this choice that has eternal implications and consequences. Listen to me, if today you have hidden sin in your life, the Spirit of God wants to not only expose that in you, but then give you the power to turn from it, to put it off and put it to death. It's by His grace and the love of God that is at work in your life right now, wanting to expose that, move that into the light and out of the darkness and out of the corner of the room so that it would no longer grow and fester. Sin is never content with just having a part of your life. In our pride, we think we can manage sin. We think we can keep it on a leash. We think we can kind of keep it over there, play with it, and then put it, and then walk away from it, and that it won't somehow want to rule over and devour us. It must be put to death by the power of the Holy Spirit, or it will lead to our death. James 1 makes that so clear. So this morning, allow the loving God of the universe to rule and reign over your heart and over your life and over those dark recesses of your heart that you're hesitant to move into the light. So here's Achan, thinking no one else is looking, falling to temptation, stealing from God himself, and we're told in verse 1 that the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And we think, no, wait, it was, it was just Achan. But notice how verse 1 begins, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. So, so there's this overflow effect, so to speak, on Achan's sin. For the Israelite nation, the Lord has called them as a nation to reflect and represent Him. He's called on the nation to worship and serve Him. You know, in school when you were growing up, especially in grade school, it was like one kid could make you miss recess. Or worse yet, could make you miss that field trip. All right? Now, this is a safe place, so let's just have a little moment of honesty here. If you were that kid, if you were, not, not all the time, but maybe you remember this one time that, yeah, I canceled recess on my class that day, or I ruined the field trip, or I ruined treats, or whatever it was. If that was you, would you like to just go ahead and raise your hand? I, I, it's not me. No, come on. There's a couple of you. Yes. All right. Now, the Bible calls us that because Christ has first forgiven us, we forgive you. So you're forgiven. We were bitter for a, a while, but we forgive you. All right. We we're especially bitter that day. In our day, we understand how sin could impact and overflow. 
We see it in um, a blood family. We see it in the church family. In a blood family, if, if depending on how you grew up, if you had a, a parent that just kind of abandoned their responsibility and, and uh, fell, um, fell to the temptation of addiction or whatever it was and just kind of walked out and abandoned, and that's impacting, that has impacted your life. That sin of one overflowed to others. All right, we see that in a spirit in a blood family. We also see that in a local church family. If a leader embezzles money, if a leader has moral failure and just um, just completely uh, goes against scripture in that and 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 falls into that, that's going to impact the mission of a church. It's going to impact the health of the family, the unity of that family, the testimony of that church family. In the New Testament, we see in First Corinthians five an example of a church of Corinth, removing a member of the church that, that who continued to remain there and yet continued in this egregious, outlandish public sin. The removal of the person wasn't an action rooted in pride by the church, but in love. Love for the people left in the church, that they wouldn't be led astray. Love for the people yet to be reached by the church. And love for the person who needed who, who had been removed who needed to know the significance of their sin wasn't just this light and insignificant thing the reality of Aiken's sin is that it has an effect on the community and nation in our western world we're all about the individual right much to our fault in an eastern world mindset the individual was part of the family and the family was part of the city and the city was part of the nation and and so this whole nation is being judged for this sin of one man. And just as the Lord promised that trouble would come to the nation if they took some of the devoted things, now we see that trouble begin to unfold. Verse 2, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Haven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai, do not make the whole people toil up there, for there are few. So about 3,000 men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Can you imagine what a blow this is to the Israelite nation? They've crossed over the Jordan in a miraculous way. They've seen Jericho walls come tumbling down. And according to the spies' report, AI is nothing. You don't even need all your men. Just two to 3,000 will do. And yet the Israelites are defeated. 36 men lost their lives. And the hearts of the entire nation are overcome with fear. In Joshua 2, when the spies are sent out, they say this, looking at the land they're about ready to conquer, they say, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Now, it's the exact opposite. The hearts of the Israelites are melting in fear. Joshua responds to this defeated Ai and the, people, the, uh, and the fear of the people in verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until, even, until the evening he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say? 
when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And so Joshua prays in response, and he's wondering why the Lord didn't bring them victory over Ai. Because if God brought them into this land simply to forsake them, then they would have been better off to have remained on the other side of the Jordan, not walking into the promised land. And Joshua is appealing to the name of the Lord. The Lord has brought them into this land so, so the nations would know that the Lord is great and, is might, and mighty and so that His name would be exalted. Verse 10, And the, uh, the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel, consecrate yourselves. Get rid of the hidden sin. Purify yourselves. And right here is this opportunity for Achan to move that sin into the light, to stop hiding, to stop pretending. But sadly, we don't see him respond in that way. Verse 16, So Joshua rose early in the morning, and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. Can you feel the weight of this growing for Achan? Can you feel this pressure kind of building? He's a member of the tribe of Judah. His sin will be found out. It won't go uncovered. God knows all and sees all, and and tribe by tribe they come before Joshua. And he brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of the Zerahites was taken and he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man and Zabdi was taken Zabdi Zabdi being the grandfather of Achan so the scope just gets narrower and narrower man by man and he brought near his household man by man and Achan the son of Carmi son of Zabdi son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken there were so many opportunities to turn from this devastating and debilitating sin. So many opportunities for Achan to just raise his hand and say, yeah, yeah, that's me. The entire nation knew that someone had stolen. They'd gone to bed the night before knowing that the next morning this is going to come into the light. Achan had all these opportunities the night before. He could have gone to Joshua. That morning before going tribe by tribe, he could have gone to Joshua, let alone walking out of Jericho going, what, what am I doing? I, I, I shouldn't, what am I doing? But his heart was hard. He was just so resistant to the grace of God and these opportunities. Little did he know that freedom and salvation are found in the light of confession, in the light of humility. 
I come back again to the question for you and I is, do you and I have hidden sin in our hearts and in our lives? Sin that we are ultimately fully aware of. So it's really not hidden. The only hidden aspect is is us trying to hide it. Trying to hide it under our tents, so to speak. We're trying to manage it. We're trying to keep it on a leash rather than putting it to death, knowing that it has been put to death on the cross. We're fooling ourselves if we think that that sin only affects us. The effect of sin never remains with just the sinner. It always overflows. The gospel of God's grace invites us to confess, invites us to to confession that, that in that confession that God is faithful and just to not only forgive us of our sin, but to purify us from all unrighteousness. So not just forgive, but to, but to set free, to cleanse, to remove the stain, to remove the shame. And we know that reality because God promises to it, promises us to it in 1 John 1.9. Verse 19 Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to Him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So he didn't even bring it in this moment. He didn't even say, I, I did this and here all is. No, he's continuing to try to hide all the way up to confession, all the way up to this moment. He's, he's tried to hide it in his tent. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the valley of, or the name of that place is called the valley of Achor. That is one of the most unsettling pictures in Scripture, is it not? On a side note, as your pastor, the last thing I want to do is try to clean up the Bible. Try to dress it up. Try to make it G-rated. Because if you look in, through Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, all the way through, not just Old Testament, but especially even at the end in Revelation, we look at the cross. It's not G-rated. So I want us to be able to deal with and, and look at the Scripture for the reality that it is. Achan had stolen from God himself. Remember, these things were called the devoted things because they were God's. He owned them. And the Bible makes it clear that the penalty of, of sin is death, and it's been that way since Genesis 3. Apart from trusting in the saving, and the, uh, saving work of Jesus, sin brings death. The Bible doesn't make it clear as to why Achan's family is involved and destroyed as well. Perhaps they were accomplices, we're not sure. And we might say, but Achan confessed. In that moment, he confessed. 
He did, but only after judgment was already upon him. In all these previous times, Achan chooses to be silent. He chose to continue to hide in hopes of knowing, no one knowing. He, 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 he chose to try to manage the sin, trying to keep it hidden in his tent rather than just admitting, here's what I've done, here's what I've fallen short. I know it's against the Lord's ways. Forgive me. Achan instead waited until judgment was upon him before confession actually came. All people one day will know who Jesus is. They will know of his holiness and his purity. Philippians 2 tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For those of us who have repented and believed the good news, trusted in Christ in this life, we will bow our knees in worship and in love and in gratitude to a Savior who has set us free and saved us. But for those who have rejected Christ in this life, who have continued to stiff-arm His invitations to trust in and follow Him, those people will bow and confess that He is Lord, but it won't be in worship. Judgment will already be upon them. Listen to me. Some of you are rejecting Christ and thinking you can walk into eternity in your own strength. That you can walk into... Like, here's my resume. I know it's better than that guy. So here's my resume, and this is going to be good enough, right? And we think that our good works or that we're not as bad as that person will be enough. We're trusting in our own strength. I remember vividly about a year before I got saved, um, the Lord impressed on my heart one night. Um, longer story, but it was just this uh, impressed on my heart that I need to trust in Him. I need to follow Him. I need to... Um, receive him into my life and i remember telling god no no not going to do that it's a terrifying thought to say no to a god of perfect holiness and of god and a god of perfect love that invited me to know him to know him in relationship to not just know about him but to know him and to enter into this lifelong, eternity-long relationship, covenant relationship. It's terrifying and so sad that I would say, no, I'm not going to do that. By God's grace, about a year later, the Lord opened up another opportunity. Not that there weren't other opportunities throughout that year, but this is the one I remember. The day I remember receiving Him and and, and turning my life over to, to him. Listen, some of you are there. You're either currently or you have told God, no, I'm not doing that. That's good for those people. That's good for my wife. That's good for my husband. It's good for my kids. Well, my kids need this. I don't need this. And some of you are there saying, no, no, no. Listen, today is the day of salvation. Today is an opportunity to no longer stiff arm his invitations of grace and love, but instead welcome and receive and humble yourself before that. Today is the day that you drop what you're holding and your doubts and your fears and your pride and you, and you follow and you can rest in the Savior 
in a Lord who was born and who lived, who died and who rose again so that you could receive the free gift of salvation and the joy of knowing God our Savior. In Achan, we see that one man's sin led to the judgment of all. That points us back to Genesis 3, that Adam, and in his rebellion, led to the fall of humanity. Now each of us are born with hearts that are not inclined toward God, but rather opposed to God and His loving authority in our lives. Romans 5 speaks to this, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sinned. So in Adam, we all have died. Judgment is upon us. And yet in the story of Achan, we see it foreshadowed to us, the gospel truth that one death can lead to the life of others. Achan died for his sins so that the Lord's anger would turn from Israel. Jesus died so that we who were once enemies could be brought near, now considered friends, sons, daughters of God in Christ. Listen to verses uh, 18 and 19 in Romans 5. So then, just as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is life-giving justification for everyone. For just as through one, one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Achan representing the people deserved to be killed for his sin. Jesus representing his people did not deserve to be killed. 1 Peter 2.22 tells us that no deceit was in his mouth, that, that he had committed no sin. As one commentary said, in a breathtaking act of substitution, we sinners deserving the fate of Achan are freely forgiven and welcomed into God's family because Jesus, our representative head, has paid for our sins. Romans 6, or the valley of Achor means the, the valley of trouble. But later in the Old Testament, in Hosea 2, it says that that God promised that one day the valley of Achor would be a door of hope. So sin brings trouble. We would all agree to that. But Jesus is our hope. Is he your hope? Is he your life? Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And if we stop there, then it'd be devastating. But the gift of God is eternal life. And if we stop there, we'd say, oh, great, everybody's got eternal life. And no, it keeps going in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's not in our good works. It's not in your last name. It's not in your upbringing. It's not in your parents. It is in Christ Jesus. Have you received this gift? Today is the day. Don't linger on this. Choose to follow Jesus today. And so the sin has been dealt with. The story continues in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given them into your hand, the king of Ai and his, and his people and his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. That's different. That's different than how it was for Jericho. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. The first time the nation went up against Ai, you don't see the Lord even commanded them to go. 
It was almost as if Joshua took action on his own without prayer, without consulting with the Lord. Oh, things are going so great. We're just going to go attack Ai as well. And this time, though, the Lord is the one leading. The, one is, the Lord is the one commanding. So even there, you see the grace of God that didn't necessarily lead them into that first fight knowing it wouldn't go well for them, knowing that 36 men were going to die. So it wasn't like the Lord commanded them to go there. Joshua potentially, in his pride, led them there. Notice, too, this time around is different as to what the people are to do with the treasure. Jericho, it was the Lord's. This time, the Lord says, take it for yourself. Take it for yourself. If only Achan had waited. If only he had trusted in God's timing, in God's ways. God is not a cruel God. He's a good God. First John tells us that his commands are not burdensome. Tyler Kenny uh, from the ministry Desiring God writes this in, in regards to this contrast of what to do with the treasure, Jericho versus Ai. He writes, now you would think that, the is, that Israel's bad record of greed at Jericho would make the Lord more reserved in what he gives them the next time. In our natural minds, we think the best way to prevent disobedience is to take away opportunities for it which coincidentally are opportunities for obedience. But God knows a better way. After their repentance, God leads Israel back up to Ai with a promise, just like the one he gave at Jericho. See, I've given into your hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land, but there's a major difference this time, no caveat. And not only no caveat, but there's this positive command to do precisely what had been restricted at Jericho. He goes on, so what is God's response to Israel's abuse of grace and their subsequent repentance? More grace. Like the father of the prodigal son, God the father of Israel does not withhold his gifts when his son repents. He doesn't treat him like one of his hired servants. He slaughters the fatted calf. In Joshua 8, God increases, increases his generosity to a repentant Israel, giving them the thing they were really seeking when they resorted to disobedience in the first place. He gives them the spoil. And then he finishes, Take heart then, fellow sinner. Where you have sought fulfillment outside of the will of God, repent. Knowing that he who poured out such abundant grace on Israel will also pour it out on you who have become his child through Jesus Christ. As a pastor and leader, I'm uh, so excited for the next year, year and a half of ministry and excitement past that, but um, I, I just believe God's going to do some great things and uh, um, move us forward in some areas, help us strengthen areas of ministry that need to be strengthened and help us clarify a vision that, that God's called us to. And um, just I just sense that God is at work building, preparing, unifying. Um, and that's not just some mystical incense thing. I just get a sense that that's where the Spirit is leading us and preparing us for as a church. So what could get in the way of what the Lord wants to do in and through us as a church? It's the same thing that got in the way in Joshua 7. It's our sin. It's our sin. It's our pride. Sin is a distraction to the mission that we are on. Eric Mason, Pastor Eric Mason, calls sin a mission killer. Hebrews 12 tells us that sin entangles and causes us to be fixed on it instead rather than Jesus. So cross point, I pray that we would be people who would confess freely 
where we have fallen short, where we're tempted, where sin is lurking at our doors, and we'd be met with the grace and truth of God. I pray that we would be people who would walk in the light, knowing that as we walk in the light of of our God, we would find fellowship with one another. I pray that we would be those people so that sin wouldn't hinder our relationship with the Lord, it wouldn't hinder our relationship with one another and the family of God, and it wouldn't hinder our testimony to the world around us, to the friends and family and neighbors and co-workers and, and fellow uh, student friends that you and I know, that you and I are praying for, that you and I are, are praying that one day would give their life to Christ, that our sin wouldn't hinder that testimony. As we finish, we're going to close in prayer. Uh, we're going to play a song, just the audio of it, and... Um, just for us to have an opportunity for us to respond in prayer. Too often, like, we're going to leave this place, and you're going to, if you have kids, you're going to go pick them up, or if not, you're going to probably run off to the next thing, and just to spend about four minutes of um, quiet prayer. If you got a friend next to you, um, a spouse, if you're by yourself, an opportunity for us to either pray by ourselves or pray with other people. So let's respond in prayer a song based off Psalm 103. Psalm 103, starting in 8, says this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Father, uh, as I consider this message just personally, um, I know in my life I've had hidden sin in the past. And by your grace, you've exposed that. And so I'm grateful for that. I stand here in 2016 being super grateful for that. Stories like that all throughout this body about how you've set us free from hidden sin and that you're continuing to give us victory over it. We thank you for that. And Father, for those who are here who are um, still struggling with hidden sin, I pray that that struggle would end today. That you would move those things that want to entangle and hinder. And by your grace, you move those into the light. Not only with you, but in the body of Christ, in community, in love. And so that we might bear with one another, so we might walk with one another. As the body of Christ, we're grateful for the opportunity we have to, to not be isolated and individualistic, but to be a part of the family of God. As you've got brothers and sisters around us, you've designed it to be that way so that we can walk with and find encouragement and, and find strength. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you that in you and in you alone is their victory and is their salvation. Thank you that in our surrender we find 
our freedom. Thank you for loving us, pursuing us, and dying for us long before we knew we needed a saving, a saving work. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. If this whole message has stirred up something in you that you need prayer about, please don't leave before we have an opportunity to pray with you. We'd love to pray with you. Meet somebody new before you leave. Have a great week. God bless.